we have been in this study. It's a little short, five-week uh, for the month of August called Better Life. It's uh, out of Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5. And, and again, just so that you're clear, it's not because Steve has all the answers, Steve has all this wisdom, and he's going to impart it to you, because uh, Steve doesn't. But Jesus does, right? And if you know Jesus, you follow him, and he leads to a better life. He's the one who said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly, to give it to the full. And so last week, we were actually the last part of chapter 4, where he talks about uh, lay aside, put away, you know, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, the kind of yelling, uh, screaming, all that type of thing, slander, malice, put it away from you. Why? Because those things are toxic. They're toxic to your soul. And, and what we are to replace it with is, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And from there, we roll right into chapter 5. Now, most of you probably know this, but when Paul wrote this, he did not write this in chapters and verses, right? That was brought along later so we can say, hey, we are today in Ephesians chapter 5, 1 and 2, right? And so you can turn there, which I'm sure you're doing right now, um, and it helps us find it. But really, there's not a much of a natural break, uh, especially in the thought process of chapter 4 moving right in. What Paul is talking about is how do you live this out? How, how do you live it in a way that you live in alignment with what God's design for you is, a better life? And so today, we're going to deal with, with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, and maybe this is just from my perspective, but it was, uh, it was kind of interesting. So I lay out, because obviously we had to, you have to know where you're going, right? So we, I lay out in advance, sometimes months, sometimes, you know, uh, six weeks, what passages we're going to do. And I don't have time in that moment as I'm looking at, I'm doing some reading, studying, putting it all together to go real in depth in my study, but, you know, basically get an idea and go, hey, we can make a sermon out of that and, and good. And then when I finally get there and you dive in and sometimes it's even, wow, it's even better than I thought it was. And this is one of those weeks because I was kind of focused on verse two uh, of this passage, but verse 1 is just so powerful and really speaks to this. So let's, let's read it together. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along. He says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This idea of walking in purpose, and that when you and I are able to find our purpose and fulfill that purpose in our life, that that's a thing that, that brings a fullness of life. That, that's a place where we find significance. That's a place where we find satisfaction and joy and contentment and all those things. Maybe I could illustrate it like this. Uh, so let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Have any of you ever in your life, not talking about the one now, though it may be the one now, but you've had a job that was just, 
it was just a terrible fit for you. It was, it wasn't in your skill set. It wasn't in your interest level. I mean, it clearly was a J-O-B to try to help put money uh, you know, into the family coffers at that moment, but you hated it. You hated going. You're tired. It just wore you. Anybody ever experienced that? All right. Quite a few of you. All right. So for me, it was, I was going to Moody Bible Institute. I was in college. I'm trying to pay my way through school. And I, so I needed a job and there was a job offering. And for those of you who are young, you won't get this, but it was really paying good money. It was paying $5 an hour. And that was big money back then, especially for college student, right? The problem was, was that it was a construction project. I've shared with you, when it comes to having, working with my hands, I was born with two left feet. I, I, I just, I, I don't get it. I don't do it. And, and I come from a very proud line of people who are like that. Uh, maybe the only person that I've ever met who's maybe more inept of working with their hands than me was my dad. Right? He called me to help him, right? It was, it was just no good. I mean, we did not hang out when I was a little guy out in the garage. I never, ever in the garage with my dad fiddling because we don't fiddle. Uh, it's hard to do with your toes, right? It just, that's not our thing, but it's $5 an hour. And the best part was that at least started with demolition. I can do demolition. Well, then I found out, no, because if you demo with the wrong thing, it's not safe. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. I won't get into that. So Dr. Seymour Hirschman, he was a, he was a medical doctor, but he bought uh, a townhouse, a four flat individual apartment unit uh, townhouse about a block from Lake Michigan. So you're talking kind of high rent, old school um, and he's going to gut the whole thing, actually down to the floors, and then rebuild it for he, his wife, and his teenage son. So it's going to be, I mean, it was quite the place. Anyway, uh, so I show up, and for the next three years, uh, this job is just miserable. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do, right? And so everything has to be, so I become the gopher, and of course, I become the one, if something goes wrong, it's my fault, because... Probably it was my fault, right? And, and I just hated this job, but, it, but it, it paid the bills. It did what it did. And, and then the other part that just drove me crazy is that I am a bit, even though I don't get construction, I am a bit of a strategic, tactical thinker, right? Dr. Hirschman, at least I hope better in his medical practice, but in construction he wasn't. So if you're familiar with Chicago, you're familiar with rural houses over by, by Lake Michigan, the little road out front is just this little one-lane road that people try to park on, so there's barely enough room to get another car actually coming down the road, let alone a, a, a construction truck. We've got a big garbage container out there, and on the very first day of demolition, all of the wood for the entire project was dropped off in the middle of the street and said, you got to get it in the house. I moved that wood pile 14 times before we ever used a piece of it. 
in my interior, I'm just pulling out my hair. It's just, why on God's green earth, right? It just was not, it was a terrible fit. I hate, I was tired walking over there. I was tired going home, but it was a job, right? Now, conversely, have any of you found that job that was like, you were made to do this? I mean, it is your sweet spot. It, it is right in your wheelhouse. Now, no, obviously, no job is perfect. But man, this, this is where your gift, this is where your passion is. You go, man, you're excited about going. It brings you joy. It brings you a sense of sadness. Have any of you ever experienced that? Oh, yeah, lots of hands. Cool. Well, I have too, right? You get to see it. I, I think... I really believe I was made to be a pastor. I love seeing lives change. I, I love doing what I'm doing right now. I take the word of God and try to make it in a way that, that people understand it and it affects their life. Right? I love raising up next generation of, of Christian leaders uh, and, and to see them step out. You know, so like when we plant Salt Church and Mission Church, and it's like, wow, that just energizes me. And many of you know that as a church, you know, God's given us some influence within our association in the last eight years as I've been able to coach and train. I mean, this is what God made me to do. It doesn't mean you don't get tired. It doesn't mean there's not bad days. But I tell you, there is a sense of purpose and excitement of going, hey, uh, th this is good. Well, here's the thing. I... I can't probably help you on what I would call the micro level, right? So if you're in that really bad job right now, you haven't found that one. I, I can't, you know, maybe we sit down and talk later. Maybe I could help you on that. But that's not my purpose this morning. But my purpose is, is to help you to see the, the macro level, the 50,000 foot view of what you were created to do. And, folk, what you were created to do was to be an image bearer of God. That's what God made you to do. That's what he wired. You want to find out where you're going to find purpose and meaning and satisfaction and contentment and, and that sense of, of, of peace and, and joy? You were made. You were wired in your soul. To be an image bearer of God. You go back to creation. And this is what it said. Then God said, let us make man in our image. We are to be like him. We are to reflect him to one another. The very next verse, he says it two more times. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. That was what you were created to do. That's what I was created to do. So beyond the, you know, what am I doing for, for a job, but up here at the 50,000 foot level, and this is the beauty of it, what we were created to do was exactly what Paul says here in verse 1. Be imitators of God. To reflect his image to each other. And so the beauty of that is, is whether you're a doctor or a construction worker or you're a teacher or you're a nurse or you're a preacher or, you know, you're, you're whatever. It doesn't matter. You can do what you do to the glory of God, reflecting his image. Now, Paul says be an imitator of God. 
I, I couldn't get past the sense of, you know, that's kind of a tall order, isn't it? And, and then it even raises the question, well, okay, so what is God like? What is it about him that I'm to reflect? And what we find is that God has revealed himself to us a lot of different ways, but in true primary ways. One is through his written word. It's the Bible. So we talk about the importance of reading the Bible, spending some time in God's word. You know, maybe in a year, trying that plan or trying to read through the Bible in a year. This is, God, this is where God reveals himself to us. The second place is he's revealed himself to us through Jesus, the living word. And so when we look to Jesus, you know, we used to wear those little bracelets, right? Well, some people did anyway. Uh, WWJD, remember that? What would Jesus do? Be an imitator of God. What would Jesus do? So there's a great verse in the book of Hebrews, which, by the way, I'm not supposed to announce yet because we don't have branding done so you did not hear it here, but told you in September we're starting our next big book study. We're going to start and we're going to take on the book of Hebrews. I'm really excited about it. it what a cool book. Um, and uh, so we're going to be starting that in September. But this is how that book opens. God, after he spoke long ago to the father, fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways. Okay, so... How did he reveal himself? The written word. In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Notice. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Be an imitator of God? <laughs> Jesus is the example because he is God in human flesh. What would Jesus do? And so you and I, as we live in alignment with, with who God made us, our purpose is, is that we are to imitate him. We are to reflect him to one another. So the way that I... The way that I am with my wife, the way that I am with my kids, the way that I am with you, the way I am with my neighbors ought to be a bearer of who God is and reflect his values, his character. Now, as you move into verse 2, you'll notice that this is a continuation of thought and, and, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you, gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This idea of, well, if we're going to imitate God, one of the pieces has got to be we've got to act lovingly. We have to walk in love because one of God's attributes is love. In fact, it really isn't just a characteristic of God because what we're told is God is love, right? That's who he is. And so if I'm going to imitate him, if I'm going to reflect him, then that means that part of what's got to come out of my life is, is love. Love to the people that God has brought into my life. You know, my, my spouse, my kids, my family, my neighbors. But also to those random people. 
that God brings into my path during the day, you know? No matter what's going on in my life, what I'm called to do is to walk in love. Now, love, though, is one of those, you know, it's such a catch-all word, right? From, um, you know, we talk about the, the love of my life, right? Marriage. And then in the same breath, you can say, but man, I'd love to have a whopper, right? We kind of get, you know, it's just kind of go, and then, you know, it's so distorted because you fall in and out of love. And what you got to understand is that's not God's idea of love. God's idea of love is that it's first of all based in his character, that he wants the best for everybody. That God isn't concerned about his own interests, but he's concerned about our interests. And so he acts towards our good. So his love towards us is based upon his character and it's based upon his actions. It's not on the emotion of the moment. There's no falling in and out of love with God towards us. He loves us. And now he acts in a way that is consistent with that love. Now, for those of you who grew up around the church, you already know this. Uh, but for those of you who maybe didn't, let me, let me just explain that in the language that the Bible, most of the New Testament was written was Greek. And in the Greek, there are multiple words which were used to describe love that when translated into English, they just use the word love, right? There's like seven, seven, eight of them. Three primary ones. One is phileo, which is the idea of brotherly love. So it's, it's kind of that camaraderie. It's, it's that shoulder to shoulder as, as a brother loves a brother. I mean, the, the city of Philadelphia, that comes from that Greek word, which of course it, Got to be the biggest oxymoron there's ever been, right? You know, they're throwing snowballs at Santa Claus. I mean, they just, but it's the city of brotherly love. That's a Greek term. Another one is the word eros, which is the idea of kind of the sexual love. It's, it's a marital love. It, it deals with sexual passion that you have to, towards a, a person. But the third word that is used is the word agape. And it was a word that as the, um, as the Christian writers, Paul and John started using this word so much, it, it took on the sense that this is God's love. It, it was a love that was unconditional. A love that, again, was based upon character and a choice the will that I'm going to act in love. In fact, for those of you that are married, do you remember the promise you made to your spouse? For most of you, the promise that you make as you stand at the altar is to love and to cherish, right? Well, that's, that's not based upon emotion. That's based upon a will. You choose. I choose to love and to cherish you. It's based upon this idea of agape love. Maybe the best definition of agape love is found in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul describes it as this. Love, agape, is patient, kind. 
Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. Well, that hits a little close to home. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. Agape love. What did Paul just say? Be imitators of God and walk in love. The people that God has put in my life, that's how I'm to love them. That's how I'm to love my wife. That's how I'm to love my children. That's how I'm to love my extended family. That's how I'm to love my neighbors. That's how I'm to love you. That's how I'm to love those random people that I walk into my life. I am to imitate God. I'm to be his image bearer. And to do that, I have to love well. I have to, out of my heart, kind of Philippians 2, not put my needs and cares and concerns first, but the needs, cares, and concerns of others. I choose to love. I act in love. It's really not based in the emotions. All right, here's the thing. You know, the enemy tries to manipulate, destroy. Sadly, you can't talk about agape love without understanding that there are people that are very, very narcissistic who are abusers to manipulators. They actually use this against Christians. Well, you've got to love me, you know. And the whole idea is you have to put up with my bad behaviors you have to put up with my abuse because you have to love me unconditionally. Whoa, 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 whoa. Loving people well does not mean you enable their destructive behaviors. Folk, God is not the cosmic enabler. He just isn't. In fact, we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to argue with you that part of the... Part of the theme of Hebrews is that God disciplines those that he loves, right? He sets boundaries. He knows he loves us too much to allow us to continue in sin because he knows the destructive nature of what it'll do to our life. And so he sets boundaries. And, and, and you get into the book of Hebrews and there's these warnings. Why? Because he cares about us. And he's not just going to say, oh, isn't that cute, right? When you're doing something, it's going to destroy your life something that's going to bring you pain. And what we're called to do is that we're called to, to love people, but loving them well isn't just patting them on the head when they're, when they're doing, you know, when you're a parent and you've got a kid that's throwing a fit. You know, some, sadly, so often what we think is loving is just to smile, just to ignore and yet what we're allowing is destructive behavior that's going to affect that child later on in life because nobody wants to be around that. What's loving is what is their best interest. Their best interest is to learn to discipline their own heart and spirit. That's where they're going to grow. That's where they're going to mature. That's what it means to become an adult. And we're kind of seeing this in, the, in our society, are we not? 
where, where we have not loved well because we have not used the word no. We have not said no, that we're not going to tolerate that. We love you too much. This stuff is going to hurt you. It's going to affect you negatively. And so what Paul tells us is that we have to walk in love, which means we serve them for their best interest, not mine. You see, that's the thing about even parenting. (laughs) Sometimes the easiest way is just to let it go. Oh, man, I can remember those days where it just, oh, just, just get out of my hair, right? Just, just go play in your room. Just go, just, if I could just stick it away, right? Because that was what was easy. What was hard was to deal with it. You know why? Because if I deal with it, I'm going to lose my daddy of the month, you know, award sticker in your heart, right? Because for the next 24 hours, you're not going to think really highly of me. Most parents don't like that. We like to kind of have the best mommy, best daddy, you know, and, you know, and they're going to be mad as mean. But I'm not loving them well if I'm looking out for my own interest and not looking out for theirs. Because I'm not trying to raise great kids here. What I'm trying to do is raise great adults. So I'm willing to do the hard stuff. I'm willing to have the hard conversations. I'm willing to do that with friends. I'm willing to listen to people that have, want to have hard conversations with me because I know that they're doing it out of a heart of love. That's what it means to walk in love, to be an imitator of God. I mean, you think of Jesus. You know, we... You know, and I, I love all the theologians online, right? Oh my, you know, what would Jesus do? And Jesus would just be tolerant. And I'm going, have you not read the Bible? So here's a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And once Jesus gets rid of the hypocritical men who brought her, they're gone. He's left standing with her. And he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin No more. No more. Destructive. The man that had been lame for 38 years, same word. All right, you've been healed, but don't, we don't know what the man had done. We don't know what got him in that position, but Jesus obviously knew. And he's warning. He's warning. Why? Because he loves. He speaks truth. You know, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Loved us well. And then that kind of leads us to the same thing. Remember back in verse 32 of of chapter 4, he said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as. Right? He gives us this illustration. He does it again in verse 2. So walk in love just as Christ also loved us. So Jesus now is again the perfect example. Just as he was the perfect example of what it means to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, Jesus is also the perfect example of how to walk in love because he loved you. And he loved you and loves you today for your best. In fact, loving you meant that he had to willingly come and give himself. So he leaves the glories of heaven. 
He becomes one of his own creation. He lives here on this earth just because he's going to give himself for you. You know, so often we forget that Jesus knew. Jesus knew the reason he came. That's why he said early on in his ministry, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus sat down his disciples as they're up by the uh, Caesarea Philippi, and he said, listen, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise on the third day. He knew why he was here. When they make that final trip, going to the last Passover where he's going to be, what it says is he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. In fact, they were, they were having a hard time keeping up with him. He knew what he'd come to do. In fact, even in the upper room, he looks at Judas, whatever you do, go do quickly. He knew he was willing. He's in the garden. He says, listen, here they come. This is the moment. And he walks out to them. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't call the myriads of angels to protect him. He willingly goes. Why? Because that was our greatest need. Our greatest need was that we were, we were sinners. We're separated from our God, right? Our purpose is to reflect him. That's what we were created to do. And you can't do that without knowing him. And you can't know him when there's sin in the way. Now what's interesting is that the people of Jesus' day didn't see their sin as their greatest need, did they? What they saw as their greatest need was getting rid of the Romans. Right? If we just got rid, when are you going to set up your kingdom, right? When are we going to sit your left hand and right? When, you know, when is you know, somebody going to sit on the seat of Israel and Israel now is going to rule the world? That's what they saw as their greatest need. But Jesus knew that wasn't their greatest need because they would still now die and go to Christless eternity. The, their greatest need was their sacrifice for sin. So Jesus came, he dies on the cross, he pays the penalty, he willingly goes to meet their greatest need. And now he offers that forgiveness, that sacrifice as a gift, a free gift that doesn't cost you anything so that you could be forgiven, so you can now live in alignment with what you were created, so now you can live life to the full as you follow after Jesus. I love how John put it. So John is Jesus' best friend here on earth, and he writes this book about him, and he kind of leads off with this with this just early in, he says this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, see, we've, we've messed that up. You know, today, so many people think this idea of knowing Jesus is, all right, you, you got to know who he is, but it's to those who go to church or it's to those who live a good life or to those who have gotten baptized, right? It's not what he says, even to those who believe in his name. That's where relationship with Jesus is found. You want to live according to your purpose no matter what you do in life. Whether you're in one of those great jobs that's so fulfilling or you're in one of the, the really, the, just the J-O-B that you just hate. You can live with fulfillment in imitating God, being his 
image bearer, when you know Jesus and you know that you are living your life for him, it will even amongst the junk. I mean, that was the thing even with Dr. Hirschman, right? He needed to know Jesus. And so every day as we walk over, man, I just pray, let me be a light. We actually, over three years, were able to have lots of conversations about the gospel. And uh, there's purpose. There's meaning. But it's found in knowing Jesus.